0: Hey, everyone. This is Matt. Before we start this episode, I wanted to let you know we're going to be bringing the Over the Edge podcast live to Edge Computing World on October 14th, 2020. We'll be recording live episodes from the event. The folks at Edge Computing World have given our listeners a generous 30% discount. So if you're interested in going, head on over to edgecomputingworld.com and use promo code Over the Edge. There's also a direct link in the show notes. That's Over the Edge one word
1: for 30% off. Hello and welcome to Over the Edge. Today's episode features an interview between Matt Trafiro and Colby Sinecel, Senior Equity Research Analyst at Cowan & Company. Colby has been covering the communications infrastructure and telecom services industries as a Senior Research Analyst since 2006 and recently co-authored Cowan's extensive Ahead of the Curve report on edge computing and the future of the internet. In this interview, Colby offers his unique perspective on the investment decisions that are powering the growth of edge infrastructure the elements that will enable true 5G, and how the pieces work together to usher in the fourth industrial revolution. But before we get into it, here's a brief word from our sponsors.
2: Over the Edge is brought to you by the generous sponsorship of Catchpoint, NetFoundry, Ori Industries, Packet, Seagate, Vapor.io, and ZenLayer. The featured sponsor of this episode of Over the Edge is Ori Industries. Ori Industries is building the world's largest edge cloud, Their products power the next generation of intelligent applications through unparalleled access to major communication networks worldwide. Ori is laying the foundations for application developers to seamlessly deploy to uncharted edge computing infrastructure across the globe. Learn more at ori.co.
1: And now, please enjoy this interview between Colby Sinusel, Senior Equity Research Analyst at Cowan & Company, and your host, Matt Truffiro.
0: Hi, this is Matt Trefiro, CMO of edge infrastructure company Vapor.io and co-chair of the Linux Foundation's State of the Edge Project. Today, I'm here with Colby Sinocell, Senior Equity Research Analyst at Cowan Company. We're going to talk about Colby's career as a technology analyst, his current views on edge and all things 5G, and where we're headed over the next decade. Colby, how are you doing today?
3: I'm doing great. Uh, thanks for having me. I appreciate it.
0: Yeah, we really like getting a lot of interesting guests on the show I'd like to start a little bit about just your background as a technology analyst. How did you even get into technology?
3: Sure. I came out of undergrad in, in 2000, and my first job was for a company called Allegiance Telecom, which some people might remember. Uh, and it was a CELAC, a competitive local exchange carrier.
0: And, what, was your, uh, that, what was your degree?
3: My degree was actually, believe it or not, in psychology, uh, and I had a minor in English. So not necessarily awesome. something you would uh, tie into uh, what I'm doing today. I, I was
0: philosophy and cognitive science, so I totally get it.
3: All right. Well, fair enough then. But I did a sales job. At that time, I was pretty focused, quite frankly, on on trying to make a few bucks. And I thought that would be a good way to start off my career. And uh, I was doing sales. And I I did it for probably about three or four months, uh, not a very long time at all. And quickly realized I wasn't probably meant to be a a salesperson. Realized at that point that I probably should be doing something different. And I had a friend who was working for an investment bank at the time called Thomas Flaisel Partners. And he mentioned that there was an opening. And and this is when I was living in Boston at the time. And I applied for that job and and got hired as an equity research uh, associate. And that was somebody who basically did a lot of the uh, grunt work, a lot of the heavy lifting, if you will, for the senior analyst. Uh, And that senior analyst was covering at that time enterprise uh, software. So you could think of names like Microsoft as an example, Oracle, et cetera. And uh, I did that job for probably about a year. And then after that, there was a promotion that was made available for somebody to work on the telecom services team. And believe it or not, just given my three or four months of experience working for Allegiance, I was asked if I'd want to apply for that job, given my experience in telecom. And I did. And and lo and behold, I Love got it. that job, quickly moved to New York City. And uh, I've been doing telecom services equity research ever since.
0: That's amazing. For those of my audience that don't know what Cowan & Company does. I became aware of you a few years ago, but only indirectly through the legendary Aspen conference you hold every year, which um, I've had peers call it the the Davos of data centers. But you and I came to know each other when you were doing some research on edge computing, and I've learned quite a bit about uh, Cowan. It's a very impressive firm, but most of my audience probably doesn't know what you are, who you serve, and why you need research.
3: Sure. So I got to correct you. The the conference is actually in Boulder, but everything else you said uh, about the superlatives are accurate. It's a great event. And hopefully some of the uh, listeners at some time are able to get out there for the event, which always happens in in August. So Cowan is an investment bank. And if you think about it, lots of people know of the Morgan Stanley's and the Goldman Sachs and the cities of this world. But there's a a second tier of investment banks, of which Cowan is one. and, And that would be names like Cowan, but also names like Jeffries, or RBC, maybe Oppenheimer, uh, is other examples. And we're a publicly traded company, so you could find us listed under the ticker COWN. And I've been working at Cowen for about 11 years now. And what Cowen does as a firm, as an investment bank, is we really kind of focus on a few different things. Number one is we do have a banking practice. That's not the group I'm in, but we do provide advisory services when companies are, are coming public or are being sold. We also have a trading vest, though, and that's really where my kind of broader focus happens, which is we help our clients, which are typically hedge funds and mutual funds, to buy and sell stocks. And what I do on the research side is I provide advice. So I cover, as you mentioned, communications infrastructure, which we consider to be the towers, the data centers, the fiber names. And then I also cover the services space, predominantly names like AT&T and Verizon, what I do is I put buy, sell, and hold ratings, or at least at town, we consider them outperform, record perform, and, and underperform ratings. And I go and I talk to our clients, again, those hedge funds and those mutual funds, and I, and I tell them the names that we think you, they should be buying and the names effectively that we think they should be selling. And ultimately, if they find our advice of value, when they actually go to buy or sell those stocks, they, they use our trading desk. And our trading desk will make you know a few pennies for every share that we trade on behalf of our customers. And you can imagine that when you're trading millions upon millions of shares uh, each day, that starts to add up to a a decent amount of money. And and that's effectively how we uh, make money for our firm. And I would say that in the equity research role that I have, I spend probably about 50% of my time talking to those clients uh, and another 50% of my time actually getting into the field to which I cover communications infrastructure and and telecom services to better learn and understand, obviously, the, the companies to which I'm covering.
0: Yeah, that's really interesting. And so Cowan doesn't sell its research. It provides it as an information resource and thought leadership in order to hopefully get that trading business.
3: That's exactly right. I mean it's, it's funny. We're we're one of the few businesses where we actually don't put a specific price on the services to which we sell. We effectively go into our clients and, and say, listen, if you value what we're what we're telling you, pay us what you feel is appropriate. Now we obviously have some threshold and that you have to hit. But there's really no explicit dollar amount tied to what it is that I do for a living, quite frankly. And as a result of that, when we are writing our research, it goes to a pretty wide audience. Some people are, are trading with our firm every day and, and therefore would be considered a great client and others probably never traded at all with us. Uh, I'd also point out that it's of value to me to have people within the industries to which I cover reading our research. So over the years, I have probably built up a list of, I'll say about 500 different people uh, that are within the industries. So they would be senior executives at Power and fiber and data center and wireless companies. It would be private equity and venture capital type investors, which again, aren't really my core clientele, but my research is also going out to those people and they don't pay us a single dollar. But ultimately by seeing our research, it helps to quite frankly, expand my brand with people that I want to know who I am so that when I do engage with them, whether it's over email or phone call or I see them at some type of event they're willing to speak with me. And and ultimately, that helps me to expand my Rolodex so that I could, you know, learn more from people who are actually in the industry.
0: Yeah, I'm one of the fortunate people that has seen some of your research because you've sent it to me. And in particular, the five-part series, Living on the Edge, it is a incredibly impressive piece of work. It is comprehensive. There was a tremendous amount of thoroughness to it. And I mean, it's the kind of report that in private industry, you would not bat an eye to pay $10,000 for. And so it's a, it's, it's, fu- it's
3: funny you say that because we, you know, people sometimes ask or say, I'm like, I'll, I'll put you on my research distribution list. And I'm like, how much is that? And I'm like, it's free. I'm not <laughs> going to charge you anything to to get our research. It's like, oh, of course, then, then sign me right up.
0: Yeah. Well, so so let's go back to, you, you mentioned the areas that you cover and you sort of rattled them off as if they all belong together, but I heard telecom infrastructure and data centers. And I think traditionally, I wouldn't have thought of those as being in the same sector. Why are they together?
3: Sure. So if you think about telecom services going back into the 1980s, and we're we're talking about just traditional phone services, but if you think about the tangential services that telecoms began to provide in the 80s and then into 90s and beyond, it included other services. So it included, for example, data center services. If you're an enterprise customer, for many of those customers, they needed some type of physical place where to put some of their IT infrastructure in, and that was effectively data center services. At the same time, you have fiber, which as we all know today, there's, there's a, effectively an independent industry of pure play companies that are providing those types of services like dark fiber and, and wavelength services in addition to the big names that we all know, like the AT&T's and Verizon's, the incumbents, if you will. Uh, and then also there's the tower space, uh, which also right. at first, actually those towers were owned by the telecoms themselves. And then over time, they got spun out into these third-party business models.
0: And now they're buying fiber assets.
3: And that's, and now they're buying fiber assets, like a, like a crown castle. And, and the point though, is that there's these other tangential spaces outside of just traditional telecom services that expanded from the traditional telecom services industry. And, and those are the, towers and the data center and, and, and the fiber space. And I'd also take it a step further and say, though, that what's interesting about those three verticals, tower, fiber, and data centers, is that they now kind of fall under their own umbrella, which is what we refer to as communications infrastructure. They're effectively the, the infrastructure assets that enable uh, communications and, and the internet to work. And I'd also take it a step further and say that those business models, in many cases, are, are actually much more aligned with the real estate model than they are with uh, traditional telco or technology. And, and what I mean by that is, when you think about technology-oriented businesses, unit pricing over time goes down. It follows Moore's law. And basically, if you think about dial-up service back in 2000, we were all taking AOL, you are getting, I don't know, a 64-kilobit connection for, we'll say, $20 per month. You flash forward to where we are today, and you're paying maybe $50, but you're getting a 300-megabit Connection. If you're looking at it on a per-bit basis, your, your pricing has gone down, but that's obviously enabled uh, you and I as consumers to consume more, and it's enabled new business models like Netflix, opposed to just email back in 2000. Communications infrastructure is different, though. It actually follows more of what I'd refer to as, as real estate-type pricing uh, or inflationary-type pricing. Said differently, the cost to being on a tower actually goes up over time. There's actually escalators built into that pricing. The same could be said for dark fiber uh, on the fiber side. And then on the data center side, also, you're seeing, you know, pricing going up. And when you start to think about the financial characteristics of those three businesses, they're very different, quite frankly, than telecom service. And that's actually why you've seen a lot of those businesses actually become REITs over the last several years.
0: Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. My company is, to a very real extent, in the real estate business, you know, in building edge infrastructure. And the thing about edge is a lot of it has to do with physical proximity. And there's no way to get physical proximity without contemplating real estate. So I definitely see how those two worlds merge. Back to telecommunications. So one of the things that I've heard you say, or maybe you've written, and I'm going to paraphrase it because I don't remember the exact quote, but it was essentially that 5G is important, but true 5G won't be here until we have edge computing. What do you mean by that?
3: So what we said is that while edge computing is not dependent on 5G, 5G is dependent on edge computing. And and what we mean by that is the the edge infrastructure, and we'll talk more about that later on, but the edge infrastructure that is obviously tied to edge computing is going to be required to truly enable what we refer to as true 5G. And if you think about 5G, similar to edge, it's a term that kind of gets abused and, and has many different meanings to many different people. But if you think about it today, most people associate it with their phone. They think about their phone as getting faster in terms of bandwidth connectivity. And that's absolutely accurate. With a 5G connection opposed to a 4G connection, your physical phone will be faster than it would have been on a 4G network. We're talking about, on average, speeds north of 100 megabits per second, whereas today's 4G networks probably have speeds closer to 50 megabits per second. But that's not the only aspect of of 5G, and that's where the true 5G argument comes into play here. There's two other key aspects. One is latency. Today's 4G networks have probably somewhere around, I'd say maybe 50 milliseconds of latency, but a 5G network is intended to have sub 10 milliseconds of latency. And then the the third aspect here is IoT. Today's 4G networks and, and 3G networks and even 2G networks could only support so many physical devices connecting to that network at any one time. And what 5G promises is to basically support a heck of a lot more devices in a given area that can connect to the network at one time than what you can get with 4G. And when you take all three of those aspects, the bandwidth speed, that north of 100 megabits, the latency, the the sub-10 milliseconds, and the massive machine connectivity, or IoT, that's combined the recipe to enable true 5G. And what's interesting is that while the faster bandwidth speed is going to be great from a phone experience perspective, having lower latency or being able to connect all these different types of devices really has nothing to do with the phone. But the beauty of True 5G is it's going to enable a lot of new businesses to leverage a wireless network beyond the phone that's never really happened before. And that's when we start to think about things like sensors and connected cars and all these other things, leveraging and utilizing a, a wireless network. And when we talk about True 5G, that's really what we're referring to. And, and, and to make that happen Absolutely, an edge infrastructure, physical edge infrastructure is going to have to be out there.
0: Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And so let's connect the, the dots on those. So when I have this physical edge infrastructure and I've deployed a 5G network that gives me the bandwidth, latency, and the ability for massive machine connectivity, what happens? What devices are going to be connected? What sensors are going to be connected? And what are we going to do with them?
3: So I mean that's the exciting part. And and unfortunately the, the punchline to some degree is I don't know. <laughs> but if you think <laughs> about 4G, 4G was was really the first time a wireless network enabled us to have broadband connectivity that was similar to what you actually could get at home broadband connectivity. And once that happened, new services were created. So think of Uber. Before 4G, when you're on a 3G network, you were able to get email, but you weren't able to get that broadband experience and therefore things like Uber didn't exist but once you enabled that broadband speed lo and behold you had uber the same thing is going to be happening with 5g which is we are going to give to the world these three key attributes the speed the latency and that massive connectivity and it will be up to the the creators the innovators out there to come up with what is that next solution or service now generically speaking people refer to it as things like augmented reality. So solutions that might use augmented reality or virtual reality. People will talk about things that will use autonomous vehicles as another example, but people talk about things like remote surgeries and so forth. There's all these different ideas that are out there, but admittedly right now, they're all conceptual. We really haven't seen them come to fruition yet because the physical network hasn't been built. But when you think about companies like AT&T and Verizon, at least here in the United States, they have incubation labs. They're, They're working on trying to figure out what are some of these services? They're working with some of those creators to try and figure out how do you actually create these services and then ultimately how will you bring them to market? And I think that's going to happen over the next several years. And when it does, what we think ultimately it does is it enables what many people refer to as the fourth industrial revolution. And that's going to create a whole new set of market opportunities that are not just uh telecom specific, but really are going to happen across just about every industry. If you think about autonomous vehicles, that obviously has huge ramifications on the auto industry. But if you think about things like remote surgery, that's going to have huge ramifications on the healthcare industry. And if you think about things like virtual reality or augmented reality, that's going to have potentially huge impacts on, on sports and entertainment. And it's really, again, it's taking these core components and then leveraging them across a, a whole broad set of industries. And, and when that happens, we think it ultimately creates a whole new set of demand that's just not in the market today. And one of the interesting things that we talk about is that when you think about the internet in its current iteration, uh, it's really been built for humans. So think about how we use it for email. We use it to go onto an application or a website. We use it to watch video. This next iteration of the internet, which very much is tied to edge computing and 5G, is actually going to be built more for machines. And it's going to be, think of things like robots, Think about things like sensors. Think about things like drones. And those are all examples that are going to need not only that faster broadband connectivity, but they're also going to need that lower latency. And there are also is going to be many, many, many of those devices, IoT effectively. And, and that's when you get to that world where it's going to unleash this huge opportunity. And, and that altogether is, is how we think of the what I referred to earlier as the fourth industrial revolution.
0: Yeah. And that line of thinking lines up nicely with the thesis that we had in the 2020 State of the Edge report, which begins with this idea of the three acts of the internet. And we're now in this third act. And the way that I explain it to well, just about everybody, but particularly lay people, as I say, the big change that's driving the need for 5G and edge computing is exactly what you said. It's like we're moving from a world of primarily people talking to machines or people talking to people like you and I are, to machines talking to machines. And the latencies and bandwidth for humans are orders of magnitudes less than the latency and bandwidth that machines can consume and desire. And that's going to drive a need for a whole new internet. But what's really fascinating about your business is taking this panoptic view of all these industry and all these trends, and then backing it down into investment decisions. And one of the things that in a new industry like this, where in order for it to really realize the financial growth, the platform has to be built. And that means many companies spending billions of dollars and lots of time to put a lot of infrastructure in place, hanging radios off of towers and light poles and street side cabinets and micro modular data centers and regional data centers and all of this. And there's a little bit of a chicken and egg problem, which is the people who want to deliver these applications are like, why should I invest in the application until the infrastructure is in place? And the people building infrastructure is like, why should I build the infrastructure until I know which applications are going to make money? And you end up in this kind of deadlock around investment. I see that breaking, but I'm super curious. Like, how you see the companies you cover justifying these investments uh, so far ahead of the curve in many senses, and how you advise your clients who are making investments in these companies, how they should think about this chicken and egg problem.
3: Sure. So, you know, I absolutely have clients that want to know what stock's going to go up tomorrow. (laughs) And if I'm lucky, maybe they want to know what's going to go up in the next quarter. But we also have other clients that are very much long-term oriented and, and do have two, three, maybe even five-year time horizons in terms of their investment. And and that's on the public market side. And and admittedly, as I mentioned earlier, my core clientele is is not private equity, but they're also very much involved in in communications infrastructure. And I have lots of relationships with those types of people. And they absolutely have a much more long-dated capital and and are making investments for five years, perhaps even 10. And as a result of that, when I'm trying to do my research, I'm I'm trying to really place all those constituencies and when we write these ahead of the curve reports, which is what we at Calen refer to as our how we brand our white papers, it's really those longer time horizons in terms of how we try to think about this stuff. We typically, by the way, for what it's worth, each analyst at will offer maybe one or two of those per year. But when I think about the opportunity set for companies like a Crown Castle or Equinix or Verizon, the way that we think about it is, is really specifically to the edge is that this is going to just bleed out over time. And it, it's not as black and white as the chicken or egg argument to which you made, meaning that we think of edge as a concept, meaning that it's not ex- an explicit definition. And, and the definition of edge is going to be very dependent on each company. And it's going to be very dependent on the actual application or, or use case to which that edge solution is. And when you think about someone like a Crown Castle as an example, who's building small cells, today they're building small cells predominantly for 4G use cases. It's actually to alleviate some of the congestion that's happening on the macro tower side so that those macro towers could effectively propagate and, and work the way that they were supposed to when you build that small cell below it, if you will, to take some of that traffic or congestion off of it. And therefore, they're, they're building out these small cells today without necessarily having an explicit 5G use case. So you think about that, if they continue to move in that path, we're going to get to a point at, at some point, whether it's in a given market or perhaps across the country, where they've built enough small cells that others that are going to use them for 5G and edge use cases can actually now start to use those at some level of scale. And then once you hit that level of scale, then it's success to get success, meaning that you're going to start to see incremental demand from 5G and from edge, which will then push more investment onto small cells. And the same thing could be said against across the fiber space. The same thing could be said against the data center space. In fact, in the data center space, while there's a lot of talk about what an edge micro or others uh, like a Vapor.io are doing in terms of building these, you know, modular specific edge locations, whether it's at the base station of a tower or it's somewhere else in the field. Well, today you're actually seeing demand shift from what was these Core data center sites, you know, for example, those owned by an Amazon or Microsoft. We've seen that hierarchy shift to where you're seeing incremental demand now in more regionalized locations, such as, for example, in suburban markets of huge population centers. And, and they're starting to see an Amazon or a Google or a Microsoft deploying in their locations. And, and therefore that could be arguably considered edge. And then ultimately what we'll see is we'll see that bleed even further. To where you actually are starting to see the Amazons and the Googles deploying in the vapor IO type locations. And again, so the way I think about it is it's not an explicit definition. It's not black and white. It's an evolution. It's a concept. And we're already starting to see that happening today. And at some point, and it's going to be different for each application and, and end user, we're going to see a, a, an inflection point where there finally is enough infrastructure that you start to see some of these newer use cases start to come to market.
0: Yeah, Yeah, I agree with that. So, Colby, you mentioned small cells, and I'm sure that a lot of my audience may think they understand what a small cell is, but I actually think there's a lot of nuance to it. Can you help us understand what you mean by small cell and why those are so important?
3: Sure. If you think about the way that mobile phones work, whether it's in the United States or or just about anywhere, they work by leveraging off of the physical infrastructure, which is a macro tower. And we've all seen these when we drive down a highway, and depending on where you live, some cities and Neighborhood associations don't want them in their backyard, but the reality is we all need them if we want our phones to work. Well, as we've all shifted to a point where we no longer have just plain old flip phones, but we actually have smartphones, the demand and requirement of of each of those macro towers is going up. We're consuming more of the radio frequencies, if you will, that our phones are dependent on to actually communicate with these macro towers. And, And that's leading to, as I mentioned earlier, some level of congestion. And the more people you have, using a tower in a given area, the less efficient that tower actually is. And it also it, it degrades the quality of service that you and I actually have with the phones when we're using them. One of the ways in which you alleviate that congestion is you do something called cell splitting, which is if you actually had a macro tower in one location, you had a macro tower in another location, you now put a new macro tower in the middle, effectively alleviating the congestion that we're previously being supported by just, for example, those two towers, now, for example, you'd have it being supported by three. Well, to take that step... Yeah,
0: so uh, a way to think about that was if you've got two towers and everybody in that area or every device in that area is connected to those two towers, you add a third tower, now you're sort of load balancing across three towers instead of two towers. Is that correct?
3: That's absolutely correct. And to take that concept a, a step further, what a small cell does is it really targets in a very small area, typically a few hundred yards to kind of really take the congestion in that given area. So where you would typically see a small cell being put is in, you know, large population centers. So it could be on a school campus. It could be in a very popular tourist destination, such as Radio City in New York City, or it could be at a stadium where thousands of people gather to to watch an event. And by putting small cells into those areas, it really does the same thing as a macro tower. It has the same radio antennas and and all that infrastructure on there that will actually communicate with your phone. But ultimately what it then does is it it alleviates some of the pressure that a macro tower in that given area had previously been supporting. And, you know, the concept of small cells are, are probably I'd say at this point, maybe five years old, maybe a little bit longer in terms of the popularity of using small cells, but it's still very much in its infancy. And to give you some concept of size, there's not perfect data on this, but there's probably somewhere between 150 and and maybe 200,000 macro towers in the United States. And and that number is probably growing a few thousand every year. Um, From a small cell perspective, there's probably today, I would say about 200,000 small cells in the United States today, but that number is expected to grow by the hundreds of thousands over the next several years. So there's a lot more small cells that are gonna get put into the marketplace But effectively, what they're doing today is they're alleviating the congestion for that 4G network. But in the future, the thought is that we're going to start to use these small cells more for these 5G use cases, these true 5G use cases, these non-phone use cases that we've been talking about.
0: Yeah. And as I understand it, another important reason that small cells will be deployed at scale for 5G is that a lot of the higher frequencies used in 5G can't go through walls and sometimes not even trees. And so having more points to connect to in and around buildings and walls becomes important. Is that a correct statement?
3: Yep. So when you think about frequency, there's there's effectively low band, mid band and, and high band spectrum. And, and we could think of low band as sub one gigahertz. And you could think of mid band as between one gigahertz and, and six gigahertz. And you can think of high as really millimeter wave type spectrum, which is typically above 20 gigahertz. And The higher you go up in frequency, to your point, the lower the signal strength actually can travel. And therefore, if you actually want to use millimeter wave spectrum, you're also going to need a lot more cell sites for it to work in a scaled fashion. And the reason that you would want to use, by the way, higher frequency or millimeter wave spectrum is the other directional argument is that the higher the frequency, the greater the bandwidth capacity that spectrum has. And, And that's just a function of physics. And therefore, if we want to start to improve the bandwidth connectivity, I, we've talked about getting to, on average, north of 100 megabits per second, and in many cases, moving towards 1 gigabit type speeds. Particularly when you're using millimeter wave spectrum to get that, you you have to start to use these new higher frequency spectrum bands, which we have historically not really used that much when you think about wireless networks.
0: Yeah, that's really interesting. This, and I think the the deployment of you mentioned 200,000 today in five years is that going to be. 500,000? A million?
3: Yeah. I mean, so when I look at other third-party research that takes more of a top-down view opposed to bottoms up, which is what I would do. I would, I would look at things from a company's perspective and build up. There's others like the, the Gartner's example of this world that kind of take top-down views on, on various industries. But when I look at those types of forecasts, you're absolutely right. And it depends on who you're, whose forecast you're looking at, but you'll see somewhere around a half million and, and perhaps upwards of a million in the next 10 years in terms of forecasted small cells being deployed in the United States. And therefore, while we're going to, as I mentioned earlier, see probably a few thousand macro towers every year getting built out, there is expected to be see this huge inflection, this growth curve, if you will, for small cells. But again, until, and it goes back to your chicken and egg, until we hit that, that inflection point, you're seeing small cells being deployed today, but maybe tens of thousands per year right now. But at some point, we're going to really hit a hockey stick curve and, and we'll see that accelerate even more.
0: Yeah. And, when, and you can see how this drives the other components of this sort of telecommunication infrastructure because presumably each of those small cells is going to have a fiber connection, which means probably putting a lot more fiber in the ground or at least lighting existing dark fiber. Is that correct?
3: Absolutely. So when you think about communications infrastructure, we, we mentioned data centers and we, we mentioned towers and, and you could even you know, put within the tower category, small cells, but the glue, if you will, for for whether it's a data center or a tower or a small cell is fiber. And as a result of that, we're going to need to see a lot more fiber being built out into the network than there actually is today. Uh, In fact, a lot of fiber, when you think about it, there's two key issues. One is that a lot of fiber was built between core networks. So for example, between different markets, between Chicago, for example, and and Milwaukee. But then when you get into a Milwaukee, there wasn't a lot of fiber being built within that given metro. Uh, and we're gonna need to see a lot more fiber going into those metros to support things like a data center or a macro tower or a small cell. The second thing too, though, is then the actual density of fiber. And we think about density in terms of actual fiber strands. And when you think about legacy networks, there was never this recognition or realization that so many different locations, whether it was a small cell or a macro tower or a data center or even an enterprise type location, would consume or require fiber connectivity. And as a result of that, when you look at outdated fiber networks, they don't have physically enough fiber strands to connect all those different locations. So in many cases you're seeing new fiber networks going in that are overlaying on top of fiber that may have already actually been in there, may have been in there for the last 20 years, but wasn't to the same level of density required to support these new use cases. And as a result of that, there's actually a tremendous amount of new fiber being built, particularly in the United States right now, to support many of these needs that we're talking about.
0: Yeah, so let's shift to Let's start at the tower the small cell and kind of work backward up to the cloud. And, you know, in fact, this is how you and I met, looking for standardized terminology to refer to these things. And as you know, from looking at the industry, everybody had a different word for it. One of the things that that I've tried to do at the State of the Edge in the Linux Foundation is bring some sense and order and common agreement around what we call these things. Although, interestingly enough, it went through another change while you were writing the report. But on this, in this infrastructure edge or service provider edge, as it's called, which roughly stretches from the internet access point in a major metropolitan area to literally the tower or the small cell or the cable head end. There's a lot of stuff happening in there. Can you help us understand what you see happening in that sometimes called middle mile?
3: Sure. First off, I just you know take this opportunity to say that when we were doing our research on writing this report, the EDGE 2020 report was very helpful and to your point, kind of helped provide some definitions around how to think about some of these things. And we used a lot of those same definitions uh, in our report. Although, to your point, uh, I think just in, in July, you guys put up an update and, and changed some of those, which is understandable, just given how fluid the idea or concept of Edge seems to be changing. With that said, when we think about the fiber connectivity, there's really three different components. There's the core network or the backbone, which, as I mentioned, connects various cities. And, and typically, the endpoints of that backbone network is, is what we refer to as interconnect oriented data centers, or some people might refer to them as carrier hotels. So for example, in New York City, 60 Hudson or 115 Halsey, 111 8th, those are all street addresses. Those are physical buildings in New York City or in the case of Halsey in New Jersey. And, and those are key areas where a lot of different local ISPs or internet service providers have their fiber connecting into. Now in a city like Chicago, you have 350 CERMAC, which is also a big carrier hotel where the local ISPs in that local region would connect into but the the backbone network would serve between for example 115 halsey and 350 cermac that would be considered the, the backbone and quite frankly there's a lot of connectivity already in, in the backbone and, and pricing is pretty efficient but what you're finding is actually more Telcos today are actually building incremental backbone network to kind of avoid to reduce latency so they're finding physical geographies to get there quicker the other thing then is then the the middle mile as you pointed out and and the middle mile is the part of the network that connects between the last mile network which is the local ISP where the end user resides and the backbone and the unfortunate part about the middle mile is that the middle mile the routing is, is very inefficient It uses something called BGP, which is a type of routing to figure out which is the best path to get traffic to where it ultimately needs to go. And because of things like competition and and, and cost analysis, it doesn't always take the, the most efficient route to get to where the end user device that needs that data actually resides. And as a result of that, what we are seeing is we're seeing increased investment in middle mile, but then also then there's that last mile. And and that last mile, as I mentioned, could either be the local telco network, it could be the local fiber network, it could be the local cable network. It's typically being supported by the local telecom or cable company. And, And that's the physical network that kind of takes you to where that end device is. And even there, actually, we're starting to see incremental investment being made, particularly as broadband connectivity, particularly in a pandemic, has become so critical to so many people. And that too has now become a pretty ripe area for investment.
0: Yeah, so let's talk about use cases. So you mentioned some at the top of the interview, and it's ones that we hear all the time and have heard for years, you know, autonomous cars and augmented reality and all this. And at some point, I can see all that happening. I mean, I was a fan of Star Trek growing up, and I believe the holodeck is going to be something we're going to experience, and medicine's going to have a tricorder, and we're going to have all this amazing computer at our fingertips in order to create these new use cases. But what's potentially more interesting is to look narrowly at what's emerging today. What are you seeing emerge today that's starting to look like production use cases, things that people are actually willing to pay for, things that are justifying ongoing investment from an end use case that uses this kind of infrastructure?
3: Sure. First off, I would say that I'll twist your question a little bit, and I'll say that what we're starting to finally see is actually the physical infrastructure being deployed to enable these cool solutions that you're talking about. So when you think about Amazon, announcing local zones or Amazon announcing their wavelength solution. Mm -hmm. We're actually starting to get services out there that can enable some of these ideas that we're talking about. The second thing I would say too, though, is that when I think about an edge location and I think about who is the actual underlying customer, uh, who's going to be able to provide the platforms to enable these solutions. It's very much in our opinion, going to be those cloud companies, the Amazons and the Googles and the Microsofts of the world. It's going to be other cloud-like type businesses. So for example, uh, CDNs like an Akamai or or Fastly. It's also going to be other companies such as cloud security companies like a Zscaler. And those are the companies that we see actually going into these physical edge locations to provide the platforms to create these or support these edge services. And that's starting to happen now. And as a result of that, we're starting to see in terms of the, the initial use cases, as, as you mentioned, uh, is we're starting to see some of that start to, to populate. And Verizon actually has, has been working, as I mentioned earlier, with some of these companies. And, and one of them, for example, is Bethesda Gaming. So gaming is going to be probably one of the first, I would argue, edge services. Um, you could appreciate things like an augmented reality or virtual reality solution. You could appreciate the, the criticality of latency, in those types of solutions. My
0: 10-year-old knows more about latency than I do sometimes.
3: (laughs) Yeah, it's funny. It's like people get bandwidth and latency confused in terms of what you actually need to have a really great gaming experience. But you think about gaming, that's absolutely, I think, going to be one of the first areas where we're actually going to start to see some of this come to fruition.
0: Yeah, either improving the real-time nature of a multiplayer game and or creating these new rich experiences that might, in fact, exist in three dimensions if I'm wearing a set of goggles or might exist in in the real world, quote-unquote, if I'm using an augmented reality application. And that requires a lot of processing. So one of the things that's a common trope in in the field of computing in general is this idea that there's this, you know, giant pendulum that swings back and forth between mainframes to personal computers, back to the cloud, back to this. And I've heard people place edge computing in that, that metaphor. And I'm not sure that's actually true. And I'd, I'd like your opinion on it. This is why I don't think it's necessarily true. Because in the past, when the pendulum swung, it really swung. Meaning the bulk of the workloads actually stopped running in one place and started running in another place. And instead, what I'm starting to see in edge computing is it's plus, meaning the edge workloads do not seem to be cannibalizing the cloud workloads. It seems that the edge workloads are actually augmenting and in some cases actually increasing the need for additional cloud workloads. And I'm wondering if you have an opinion on that.
3: Yeah, absolutely. If you kind of go and look at the history of computing, back in the 1940s through the, the 1960s, we saw really the beginning of computing in, in the form of the mainframe. And you know, the mainframe was a, effectively a centralized computing solution. And the reason for that is A, it was really expensive. And B, the mainframes certainly back then took up a lot of physical space. So you, you would put them in a centralized location and then effectively people would be able to connect into that to harness that computing power. And then ultimately what happened is that was replaced by personal computing. And that was in the 1960s through what we'll call the, the 1990s. And that was probably our first version of what we'd refer to as, as distributed computing. And what that helped usher in was, was adoption. More people were actually able to use computing resources than what was possible when we were you know, utilizing mainframes. And then the third phase of this uh, was the cloud, as you just referenced. We went back effectively to a centralized computing platform, but leveraging the Internet. And that allowed us, and that was probably in the 2000s and through the 2010s, and that allowed us to gain a level of scale. You were able to effectively do more by harnessing the cloud opposed to what was possible just with your own personal computer. And and now what we're seeing is, is we're seeing a fourth shift, which is effectively the edge. and And we're going back then to a distributed architecture. But what's interesting is it's still actually leveraging or using the underlying cloud architecture that we saw come to fruition in that 2000s, the 2010s time period. And therefore you're still maintaining that level of scale that you got by consuming off of the cloud, but you're gaining that efficiency by by going back to that distributed model. And to your point then, I don't think of the edge as cannibalizing the cloud. I, I think of the edge as expanding the TAM, the total adjustable market for the cloud. And when I think about the internet Hierarchy that the physical infrastructure that that makes up the internet. I I think about it in the form of data centers, and as I mentioned earlier, you have these large data center facilities in in areas where taxes are lower and power is cheap, that are typically owned and controlled by these large hyperscale companies, like, for example, an Amazon or Microsoft. And then you ultimately have, as I mentioned, those data centers that are in those regional areas where the population centers, those that are actually consuming these services, reside. And and now you're actually going to see a third layer, which is these localized data centers, which are effectively the edge, augmenting that previous hierarchy to which we had, which was predominantly those core and, and regional locations. And by doing that, you're not necessarily cannibalizing the demand that's going to the core or it's going to those regional facilities. You're augmenting it. And I think that a lot of the data that's going to be created by these new services, you think about the autonomous vehicles, or you think about the augmented and virtual reality solutions that the edge is going to enable, it's gonna create a whole new set of data that that doesn't exist today. And not all that data is gonna be stored and computed at the edge. Some of it's gonna move back to those regional data centers. Some of it's gonna move back to those core data centers. And dynamically, it's going to change where that data is stored and computed. And it's gonna be very different depending on the application and the workload itself. But ultimately, what the edge is going to do is it's gonna create I think, a a tremendous amount of new demand for all those constituencies, and at the heart of it is going to be the cloud. And as I mentioned to you earlier, a lot of the demand today for the cloud has come from human-oriented use cases, and it's come from shifting, for example, the way that we work from an on-premise type IT architecture to a cloud-based architecture, and it's come from us shifting how we consume, for example, video from a linear-based solution to an OTT-based solution. But these new use cases that we talked about, that are going to be machine oriented, are going to create a whole new set of demand that I think is going to be really the next phase of growth for cloud computing.
0: Yeah, yeah, that's uh, that's really interesting. So you mentioned earlier that a lot of the growth in edge is going to be driven by the cloud providers, but there's an interesting dynamic between the last mile service providers, particularly the telcos and the cloud providers, because in you know the first wave of four G LTE build out, as you mentioned, the telephone networks were finally capable of carrying rich data and supporting the rich applications enabled by smartphones. But the telcos feel that with the OTT, the over-the-top services, the Netflixes, the applications that run on Amazons, that they sort of got cut out of a lot of the revenue capture. I've heard them say sometimes in, in really harsh terms, over my dead body, are we going to be a dumb bit pipe with 5G? And yet you see some partnerships being at least publicly talked about. You mentioned Amazon with Wavelength and Verizon, uh, and I believe AT&T is also doing something with Microsoft. But I suspect there's, it's, it's like coopetition, right? There's tension in that relationship because ultimately the cloud providers have immense power and they have the application developers. And back to Steve Ballmer's famous words, developers, 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 it really does create tremendous gravity around application creation and deployment. What are you seeing happening in these backroom conversations? How are the telcos viewing their relationship to the cloud providers and vice versa?
3: Sure, so to your point on on, on 4G, when you think about the the value creation, yes, the wireless carriers benefited from the emergence of 4G and and you saw tremendous growth as as people shifted over to smartphone devices and, and started to consume more data. So by no means was it a, a zero-sum game for them. But when you think about where the majority of the value yeah, creation-
0: I have a $350 cell phone bill because I get data. That's right. So uh, I rarely all, use the phone app.
3: We've all had those bill shock moments, not just what used to be on the voice app, but now even on, on the broadband side, particularly don't have an unlimited plan still. But, but when you think about where the majority of the value creation happened, it, it occurred at the application layer. You think about the Instagrams, the Facebooks, now the TikToks that's where the overwhelming majority of value creation came because of the creation of of 4g and to your point that the carriers don't want to see that happen again they want to make sure that they participate in the monetization of 5g in a more meaningful way uh, than they did with 4g and the good news is i think 5g actually is going to give them an opportunity to do that and it's through something called network slicing yeah i agree and if you think about 5G networks and we think about true 5G, depending on the actual application or or service, they're all going to have different requirements. Some, for example, might need very low latency. Others might need very high bandwidth, but some might not. If you think about, for example, sensors that are in the marketplace, some might actually really need latency. Some might just be collecting data and then once a week pushing that up into the cloud. You also would start to think about things like service level. Uh, agreements in terms of having to ensure that this definitely works because it's, for example, healthcare oriented. And and if it doesn't work, someone's going to lose their life. Whereas others are going to be for entertainment purposes and therefore having a very high service level agreement may not be as important. And network slicing, what it's intended to do is basically allow each of these application companies that are are creating these 5G services to go in there and say, well, I, I need these specific resources and I don't need these specific resources. But the fact that they actually need to go in there into the network and and basically, you know, say, I need this and I don't need that, it forces them to have a conversation with the carrier. And it ultimately allows the carrier to monetize that in a way that they haven't been with 4G. Because if you think about 4G, it was one plain vanilla network. Everybody had access to the same network. And therefore, once you created the actual application and your end user was paying for their mobile services like you and I, there was really no opportunity for Verizon or AT&T or anybody for that man to go insert themselves into that conversation. Well, well, 5G is going to be different. And and as a result of that, there is thought to be a, a better monetization opportunity. The second thing I would say, though, in terms of where are we today, it's really in that exploration phase. I mean, you think about all the different things that Verizon is doing in terms of, in, in AT&T for that matter, and T-Mobile, in terms of building out their various edge infrastructure, what they refer to as their MEX, mobile edge computing type locations. And they're working with various partners, as I mentioned, Bethesda Gaming and Amazon and Google, particularly in the case of AT&T. They're trying to figure it out. And, And ultimately, I think we're going to get to a point where there is going to be more of a partnership between these clouds and these telcos because these clouds are going to actually become increasingly dependent on the wireless networks, I think, for where their next level of demand is going to come from.
0: Yeah, that seems to make sense. And I think five years ago, there was a a notion in the telco industry that was supported by some of them buying up data centers that they ultimately mostly divested of. But this idea that that the telcos would offer their own cloud. And I think as appealing as that was from a potential revenue capture standpoint, what that idea missed is it's going to be really hard to attract the mass of developers to a new cloud there are three to five major clouds depending on how you count and there's not an even distribution among those five and so the top three kind of make the biggest impact and those developers who develop for amazon or microsoft or google cloud platforms don't want to distribute to a new cloud it may not be cost effective the other thing that's interesting is that you know you have multiple carriers And as a developer, I don't want to have to go and negotiate an arrangement with each carrier, and I want to be able to develop an application and deploy it one time. And so I could see a business arrangement being made where maybe there's API integrations between the clouds and the service providers, where I, as, say, an Amazon customer, today, I can provision an EC2 instance in one of two locations in the U.S. Well, like in both locations if I want to, U.S. West and U.S. East. Those are my choices. And there's the time in the future where I imagine I'll be able to deploy instances, not just in US West and US East, but in Chicago West and Chicago East. And if I'm deploying in Chicago West and Chicago East, I imagine that I would also want to be able to check a box that says provision me an SLA guaranteed network slice, because that's what my application requires. And you know there'd be some business relationship where money would flow back to the carriers in that case. So I definitely see that happening. I wonder if you have an opinion on The carriers collaborating to offer a way for developers, you know, sort of federating their resources so that I don't have to go into every market and talk to every carrier in order to have an application that runs anywhere. And not just U.S., but global. Do you see any hope that we're going to see some sort of open API or some other capability that would allow a developer to write an application that works across multiple networks owned by different companies?
3: Yes. So there lies the rub. So, if we look about where we are today, and the various press releases that are coming out tied to five G and also tied to the edge, they are very carrier specific. So, AWS partnering in a specific city like Chicago with a Verizon. You know, we've asked Verizon this. In fact, we actually just had our communications infrastructure summit virtual this year, opposed to in Boulder, and and we had Verizon there. And, And one of the questions that we asked them is, if, for example, somebody has deployed a edge solution. Uh, on AWS, and they're on an AT&T network, but AWS is deployed in your facility in Chicago, will that work? And the unfortunate part is is they really aren't able to give an answer right now. And I think that the risk that we have then is will AWS then have to go and deploy in Chicago, not just with Verizon, but also with AT&T and then also with T-Mobile. And you would think that AWS isn't going to want to do that because it's obviously not very efficient. So that's still something that's, that's a question mark, and we'll have to get solved. You know, to that point, one of the arguments we have broadly speaking for edge computing is I do think that given the sheer cost of making all this happen effectively, putting a lot more physical infrastructure in a lot more places, it actually will argue more for the neutral host model than we've seen historically, because it's going to be a way to alleviate some of these costs. And then ultimately, if that happens, and, and therefore the, the future model isn't necessarily they'd deploying in all Verizon facilities, but perhaps in a neutral location, you know, then, then Verizon isn't necessarily going to be cut out. The business model is going to be, again, as we talked about, more tied to things like network slicing, which they'd still be able to do. But the ability to actually physically have that edge computing infrastructure in their network, uh, or at least physically in their edge data center type locations, that may actually not sustain as we get further into this evolution.
0: I'm glad you brought up the neutral host model because I agree that that is one of the most important concepts that has been around for a while, but is, is now being applied in new ways. Obviously, for a long time, carrier hotels have been neutral host. Anybody can bring their network in, connect to anybody else's network. And to some extent, The tower industry moved from vertically integrated with the telcos into a neutral host model. And I'll say neutral host in quotes because it doesn't quite mean the same thing, but it's shared infrastructure, meaning it costs me a lot less to deploy my radio head on a crown castle or uh, an American tower tower that's being amortized with two or three other companies radio heads on that tower. And so I can yield a time to value acceleration. I can potentially lower my cost of deployment my cost of maintenance. And you could see that being applied to other pieces of infrastructure like fiber routes or data centers with co-location, things that weren't typically, I mean, to the best of my knowledge in the US, uh, carriers don't share street side cabinets, but you could see a world that says, okay, well, it's going to cost us X to build a street side cabinet, And it's going to occupy this space and somebody's got to, as you pointed out, buy the real estate and get the permits and put the physical thing there. Why don't we build one that can hold, you know, the equipment of three carriers and reduce everybody's cost and keep the city a little less cluttered with street side boxes and stuff like that. So what are you seeing in reality on the ground from a shared infrastructure perspective and where the trend is going?
3: Well, like everything else it depends on the price. You know, When we think about small cells as an example, in really the Crown Castle uh, argument, they would make the same exact argument that you just made. But in some situations, when we've spoken with the carrier, their, their argument has been that the price point to which they're charging you know, doesn't reflect the shared economics the way that one might think it does. And as a result of that, they're you know, choosing to, to build themselves opposed to using the, the neutral host model. You know, our thought is, is twofold. One is that I think over time, as they looked at going to more and more places and ultimately we'll have to spend more and more capital, I think that they'll increasingly be open to using that third-party model. So I think part of this is just a, a function of scale. And right now they're doing it at a small enough scale that they can afford to do it.
0: And they're doing it in tier one cities.
3: And they're doing it in tier one cities. And, and by the way, in some cases where they already have their own physical uh, network to build off of. The second thing I would say though too, is, is also you know, being first to market. And if you think about Verizon in particular, Verizon has always been known as being the, the highest quality network provider when it comes to wireless. It's why a lot of people would argue that they're the best service because of the, the network quality. But what's interesting is that when you think about 4G and, and again, that phone-oriented experience, the quality of the network between a Verizon and a AT&T and a T-Mobile is probably the, the smallest it's ever been in terms of differentiation between the, the three. Effectively, T-Mobile and AT&T have, for the most part, caught up. What's interesting about 5G and the edge computing is that it does require this whole new network topology, this new physical infrastructure, and it requires a lot of fiber, uh, and then ultimately small cells. And part of what we think Verizon is doing is they're recreating that first mover advantage that they used to have when it came to 3G and, and then 4G in the beginning. And that is that they're building their own physical fiber and they're building their own small cells. And by doing it themselves, they obviously aren't—they don't have a desire to go and share that with an AT and T T-Mobile. So that when AT and T and T-Mobile you know, put more focus on these same aspects, AT&T and T-Mobile are gonna have a a lot more work and and it's gonna be a lot harder for them to replicate what Verizon has established. Now, if you think about it, Verizon had just been purely dependent on partners like a Crown Castle to build all of this. You can imagine that Crown Castle would be very happy to go and sell that exact same infrastructure to an AT&T and a T-Mobile. So I think part of this is Verizon, again, early on, uh, trying to establish that first mover advantage But again once we get to a point of scale and we get to a point of demand where we hit that inflection there's just so much opportunity if you will for verizon or for an 18 or t-mobile our sense is that they're going to become much more comfortable utilizing a third party or neutral host model very similar to what they've become accustomed to on the macro power side
0: colby this has been such a terrifically fascinating conversation i i realized that we could probably go another two hours uh maybe i'll have you back on season two (laughs) Um, Thank you so much for spending time with us. For people that want to find you and Cowan online, uh, where could they go?
3: Yeah, well, the the website is cowan.com. And uh, my email address is is my first name, dot my last name, at cowan.com. And I'm always available and and happy to have conversations with people in ministry just so I can learn uh, as much as from them as hopefully they can learn from me.
0: That's terrific. Thank you, Colby, so much for joining us today. I really appreciate it. Thank you,
3: Matt.
1: That does it for this episode of Over the Edge. Over the Edge is made possible through the generous sponsorship of the Magnificent Seven VaporIO, IO, Packet, Seagate, Catchpoint, Ori Industries, ZenLayer, and NetFoundry. If you're enjoying the show, please take a moment to subscribe, rate five stars, and review, and share the show with someone you know who might enjoy it. To get in touch with the show, email us at team at teamovertheedgepodcast.com. Thank you for listening.
2: Ori Industries is building the world's largest edge cloud. Their products power the next generation of intelligent applications through unparalleled access to major communication networks worldwide. Ori is laying the foundations for application developers to seamlessly deploy to uncharted edge computing infrastructure across the globe. Learn more at ori.co.
0: Hey, everyone. Just a quick reminder. On October 14th, we're going to be bringing the Over the Edge podcast live to Edge Computing World. We'll be recording episodes from the event. And if you'd like to attend, the folks at Edge Computing World have given our listeners a generous 30% discount. So head on over to edgecomputingworld.com and use promo code OVERTHEEDGE, one word, for 30% off. There's also a link in the show notes.